Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 21st, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardout. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering salient legal trends percolating their way through courts around the country and in California. This week's show will regard a couple of fairly arcane pieces of federal law that have begun receiving a bit more public and now legal scrutiny over the past few months as they've been dusted off and employed in a range of federal suits relating to the current presidential administration. One is a constitutional provision preventing gifts, emoluments, offices, or titles to flow from foreign governments to U.S. public servants without the consent of Congress. As President Donald Trump maintains an array of private business interests, many of them foreign, several different parties, some members of Congress, some private parties, and some states have brought suits seeking to ensure compliance with the constitutional provision. Now, a spirited debate surrounds these suits, and hearty disagreement centers particularly around whether the various plaintiffs in question have suffered the sorts of harms upon which they could base constitutional standing. But our first guest, Professor Zachary Clapton from Cornell Law School, is here to address a separate and more threshold matter, one that must be resolved prior to any inquiry over standing. That matter is whether or not the Emoluments Clause is in fact justiciable at all, such that courts have the constitutional power to hear disputes over it. Though the provision has been scarcely litigated and its contour is not really defined by any U.S. Supreme Court case law, Clopton will nonetheless help us walk through some analogous constitutional provisions that help shed some light on this foundational question of justiciability. We'll then be joined by Sophia Lakin and Teresa Lee, staff attorneys with the ACLU and part of its Voting Rights Project, who have brought suit under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, a 70s-era Freedom of Information-style statute promoting and requiring transparency, on the part of special committees, boards, commissions, and the like, mustered to dispense advice or recommendations to the president. Lincoln and Lee are part of an action against the nascent Commission on Election Integrity formed by the president purportedly to prevent voter fraud. Our guests will explain why, in their view, the commission stands in violation of the Advisory Committee Act both for transparency and access reasons, but perhaps more substantively, what Lakin and Lee argue is a more insidious underlying motivation, notwithstanding the group's express aim of securing elections. Before we hear from our guests, don't forget that CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that, I'll welcome in my first guest, Professor Zachary Clopton. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Professor, you've written about uh, recently the, the Emoluments Clause, one of the more arcane portions of the Constitution, unlike some of the more well-worn ones within the First Amendment or the 14th Amendment. Um, this one is within Article 1, Section 9, preventing, for one thing, titles of nobility from being granted to, to folks in the U.S., but then also office holders from, at least without the consent of, of Congress, accepting any present emolument office or title from uh, any king, prince, or foreign state. Of course, the the passage comes to prominence recently as our, our president retained some, some business ties that could arguably create avenues by which presents or gifts or amounts of money could flow from, from foreign entities. Um, you wrote specifically about the justiciability of of this clause. Before we get to, to whether or not courts really have the power to weigh in here, maybe we could just uh, start with the, the background about the clause and perhaps to the extent that you, you know, you know what uh, exactly is an emolument. Uh, so it turns out, and I admit I wasn't deeply familiar with these clauses uh, prior to uh, 2017 either, there are two emoluments clauses in the Constitution. Uh, the one you mentioned and the one that I suspect we'll spend most of our time talking about today uh, can be referred to as the Foreign Emoluments Clause. It prevents, as you said, the president or officers of the United States from receiving gifts, profits, uh, etc. from foreign governments. There's also a Domestic Emoluments Clause that's uh, in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 7 of the Constitution, uh, and that limits the kind of additional compensation that might be available uh, to the president from the United States or from any state governments. And there are actually domestic emoluments clause issues uh, as it relates to the president as well, uh, but the more central ones for our conversation are the foreign emoluments issues. And one big question in this case is, what does an emolument mean? The Justice Department, uh, on behalf of the administration, has a narrow view, and their view suggests that an emolument must be limited to something received by the president uh, as part of or conditioned on his official position. 
the lawyers for the plaintiffs in these cases, which we'll talk about, uh, as well as some uh, prominent and well-respected legal academics and historians suggest that the definition of emolument at the time of the Constitution was broader, uh, meaning something more like a profit or a gift. Uh, so the claim in these cases is that the president uh, is receiving profits uh, through his business holdings from foreign states, from foreign governments that are doing business with Trump-related entities, uh, and that those profits are flowing to him in violation of this provision in the Constitution because he has not sought and received congressional consent. Out of curiosity, obviously, this clause is included in, in the Constitution, which doesn't have a whole lot of uh, superfluous language. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the drafters must have, must have had a, some particular instances in mind. Sort of back then, what uh, what kind of things were, were they trying to ward against that, that they must have been uh, ha- having in mind? Sure. I mean, I think the the best histories of this clause suggest that it's an anti-corruption tool, that there was a concern that uh, officers of the United States would come under the sway of foreign governments uh, through various means, uh, and as a result, would not perhaps be loyal uh, to the United States, would not be carrying out their duties in service of United States interests. Uh, the Again, the plaintiffs in these cases and the academics who are supporting them suggest that the definition of emolument wasn't uh, so narrow that it just looked, for example, to uh, direct bribes, but actually included a lot more than that. Uh, anything that might influence the judgment of an officer uh, of the United States. As you say, these uh, these questions are no longer really theoretical. We have a few different cases that have been filed with an eye towards enforcing the emoluments clause against the president. There are different sorts of plaintiffs in, in the three filed at the moment. Some um, are congressional representatives, some are states, others are, are private parties. Uh, briefly, could you walk me through the, the different types of plaintiffs that we have here and the sort of the, the harms that they allege? Absolutely. And I think uh, it is important to see the different types of claims that are brought by these plaintiffs. They are important both on the merits, knowing whether or not uh, the president did commit the violations he's alleged to have committed, uh, but also to questions related to standing and justiciability that I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Uh, So the first one of these cases uh, is brought by private plaintiffs. There's actually two classes of private plaintiffs. Uh, One are private businesses or individuals that compete in the marketplace with Trump-related businesses. And what they claim is that foreign governments that buy hotel rooms, that go to restaurants uh, in New York and Washington, D.C., are choosing to go to Trump businesses rather than to their private businesses, uh, in part to curry favor with the administration. Uh, The other set of private plaintiffs uh, uh, comprises an organization called Crew, uh, which has as its mission policing ethical, potential ethical violations uh, in government. And they say that they've had to expend significant uh, costs monitoring the president and the business entities that he's affiliated with uh, far greater than they had under any other administration. So that's the private side. Uh, We have a separate lawsuit brought by Maryland and the District of Columbia. And Maryland and D.C. claim that they too are in competition with the Trump administration. The state of Maryland owns venues that compete with Trump venues, again, for business, uh, including business by foreign governments. And so they believe that the president, in violating the emoluments clause, again, receiving potential profits from foreign government business, uh, affects their state-owned businesses. They also claim that there's a violation of essentially the contract that Maryland and other states signed when they joined the union. That contract is the Constitution, and they claim that they signed that contract based on its terms, and one of those terms was the prohibition included in the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Uh, The final class of plaintiffs are members of Congress, over 200 members of Congress, and they claim that they have been deprived of their ability to carry out their constitutional duty. As we discussed, the Emoluments Clause doesn't actually say that the president cannot receive profits from foreign governments. It says that he can't do so unless Congress consents. And what the members of Congress have said is, unless and until President Trump presents them with these potential emoluments, they have been unable to decide whether or not they want to consent. 
And so their claim is that they've been deprived of that ability based on the conduct of the president. Are these various different harms, uh, just giving basis for uh, for standing to these different plaintiffs or potentially giving basis for uh, for standing, have been bandied about and much discussed. And we'll probably uh, pull them apart a, a little bit. But before we do, uh, you address a, a more sort of foundational kind of bedrock question um, in the piece that you wrote about emoluments for the Take Care blog. Uh, and you talk about, of course, the, the justiciability, what, just whether or not courts, uh, before we get to the question of if plaintiffs have harm, whether or not courts can actually hear uh, these sorts of cases. Um, why why do you, do you use that frame to, to address the broader question? Um, and sort of what what is this, uh, the doctrine around justiciability, what, what are the sorts of, of claims that tend to, to not be uh, ones you can, you can bring before courts? Um, so what, what prompted me to write this piece on the Take Care blog uh, was reading first the Justice Department's motion to dismiss in the private suit uh, and then some of the commentary surrounding it. And one of the arguments the Justice Department makes is that the private parties don't have standing. But reading between the lines a little bit, it seemed to me that the Justice Department might be, and I can't say for sure, but might be setting up uh, – to make similar arguments in the other lawsuits as well. And when you say that every conceivable plaintiff can't bring the case, eventually I think we have to say that de facto you're arguing that no one can bring the case, mm-hmm. that a particular type of claim is not justiciable to use the Supreme Court's language. Uh, we have a series of, of doctrines about justiciability. Uh, standing is perhaps the most common, and that uh, typically is about the standing of a particular plaintiff uh, to bring a claim. Uh, but of course, saying that plaintiff A lacks standing doesn't mean that plaintiff B couldn't figure it out. Uh, but there are some doctrines that uh, are about justiciability generally. Uh, the most famous of those is probably the political question doctrine. Uh, and the political question doctrine says that there are some claims that are such fundamental political questions uh, questions, for example, that need to be fought out between the president and Congress, uh, that the courts should just never be involved. Uh, and I think it's it's important to distinguish when we're talking about these cases, whether we're saying this is the wrong guy in court or nobody should be in court. Right. Uh, and that has consequences for the role of courts in our society. It has consequences for the type of oversight that might be available for, uh, in this case, the president. Uh, not to say that every issue should be the subject of a lawsuit. I would certainly not go that far. Uh, but it's important, I think, that we're clear uh, in our law which box we're putting things in. Uh, and in these cases, I think it's important to press the federal government, the Justice Department, on what it is exactly that they're arguing. We're refocusing on the Foreign Emoluments Clause here. You say that the, the portion of the, the clause relating to con- congressional consent, that um, this is the sort of thing that could occur with consent of Congress maybe means it could be read as suggesting non-judiciability. This is something between the executive and the legislative branches, uh, not really an area for the court to weigh in. Could you walk me through through that lo- logic that that would um, suggest non-judiciability? Sure. So when you read this clause in the Constitution and you see that the president's ability to accept foreign emoluments uh, can be approved by Congress, your first thought might be, oh, This sounds to me like an issue between the executive and Congress. The Constitution is talking about responsibilities, in this case, that apply to the president, and suggesting that Congress has a role of essentially adjudicating whether it's okay for the president to accept the emolument or not. Uh, And one thing I suggest in this essay is that that's not really the right way to think about it. And it's not the right way to think about it for two groups of reasons. Uh, One, and this argument isn't new to me, uh, I mentioned in the piece both Richard Primus and Michael Dorff, who have also made a similar point recently, uh, that when you say that the president can do something with the consent of Congress, but you don't provide any force uh, for Congress to enforce that requirement, then what a president might choose to do is just never go to Congress. If they never go to Congress, Congress can never disapprove, and the president can go forward conducting whatever uh, business he or she intends to conduct. Uh, And that just can't be the way this clause is supposed to work. And so just because we ask for Congress to consent doesn't mean that the issue should be non-justiciable. And in fact, the members of Congress, 
in their lawsuit have said, we'd like the opportunity to do this, but we need the president to come to us to present us with the relevant information to allow us to make an informed decision. And he hasn't done that. And so that's what they're asking the court to order uh, President Trump to do. Uh, the second piece of this is uh, it turns out there are other also perhaps equally obscure clauses of the Constitution that include this consent of Congress language, the tonnage clause, the import-export clause, uh, again, spend much time with prior to 2017. Uh, those clauses also provide that certain conduct, uh, often conduct by state governments, is not permissible unless Congress consents. And although we haven't seen uh, any real litigation about the Foreign Emoluments Clause, there have been cases going all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, where private parties have brought claims under these other clauses. And the claims in those cases are that governments have taken actions that violate such and such a clause that harm me without going to Congress and getting consent. So as a kind of pure legal precedent matter, uh, just because Congress is put in a position to consent or not uh, doesn't mean that the court's need to stay out of the dispute. Perhaps just, just to illustrate that a little bit, could you give me some example of one of those other more arcane clauses, like the, the tonnage clause that you referenced? Uh, I know there was an Alaska case that uh, sort of il illustrates your point. Yeah, so this is a, this is a case uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court about uh, the tonnage clause. Uh, and so the tonnage clause basically, uh, in today's terms, means that uh, states can't tax ships used for interstate commerce. Uh, we don't want states interfering with interstate commerce. We have the Commerce Clause. Uh, but one thing that I think the framers had in mind is that maybe states wouldn't pass laws restricting commerce. They would just impose taxes on the vehicles of commerce and ships uh, and indirectly uh, impede interstate commerce. So the Constitution says you can't have one of these taxes unless Congress consents. Uh, the city of Valdez, Alaska, uh, made famous by the Exxon Valdez oil spill, uh, imposed a city tax that essentially fell only on oil tankers, uh, oil tankers primarily involved in interstate or international commerce. Uh, and so one owner of an oil tanker sued, uh, and the claim was that this tax was unconstitutional, that the city of Valdez uh, violated the tonnage clause without the consent of Congress. Case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agrees. They say, you're right, this violates the tonnage clause, this is an unconstitutional tax. Uh, again, this is a clause in the Constitution that has this consent of Congress language. If Congress has said it's okay for Valdez or Alaska to have such a tax, the tax would have been constitutional. Uh, but when the court hears the case, they don't say, I'm sorry, plaintiff, I can't hear your case because this is an issue for Congress. Uh, instead, they treat the case as justiciable. They make a decision on the merits, and they, in this case, uh, award a victory to the private plaintiff. To reinforce your point, uh, like any good attorney would, you, you resorted to some, some foundational precedent here, the, uh, a case known to most, most folks, the Chisholm versus Georgia case from the 1790s, in which the, the first attorney general, Edmund Randolph, uh, kind of reiterated the argument that you're making. And if you'll indulge me, I'd just like to, to read what you, um, what you quoted, where he says, are states to enjoy the high privilege of acting thus eminently wrong without control, or does a remedy exist. The level of morality would lead us to wish that some check should be found if the evil which flows from it be not too great for the good contemplated. Um, so I assume you know, the use of, of that language is just uh, 18th century version of, of your argument that if the Constitution is prescribing a particular activity, that if there's no remedy to enforce it, then what, what, what good is it? Exactly. So this, uh, this case is about the federal court's jurisdiction over the state of Georgia, uh, and if, if you remember, uh, for readers who have gone back and re read old Supreme Court cases, the old style, and at least some of the reporters, was to include at the front of the case the arguments of counsel. Hmm. So Edmund Randolph is an attorney uh, involved in this case. He's the first attorney general. And he uh, argues that the court needs to have jurisdiction. And one of the arguments he makes is that we've got a bunch of constitutional provisions uh, that constrain state behavior. And we need some way to enforce them. And he lists among those constraints the tonnage clause and the import-export clause, two clauses that have this consent of Congress language. Uh, and he says that we need some tool 
Uh, and one potential tool, one that he advocates for in this case in particular, is for courts to be involved to enforce those provisions. Uh, and so the argument that I try to make in this piece and that I know plaintiffs are making in these cases is, is a similar one. It's that if we have, in this case, a rule that tries to constrain presidential behavior, we need to put some teeth in that rule. Otherwise, it moves from a rule to just uh, a little piece of advice. And the claim in these cases, particularly by the members of Congress, is that without the courts, uh, we have no teeth. Congress hasn't been given the opportunity to consent or not consent. Uh, the private plaintiffs here allege they've been personally harmed. And so the, the next move here is to go to federal court. Okay. Now, uh, the argument that you most clearly kind of set up and knocked down here relates to um, the fact that the consent of Congress is contemplated and the clause might suggest a political question. Are, are there any other arguments that either have been raised by the Justice Department or that, that could be that would support the, the notion that this is a non-justiciable type uh, issue? Sure. I think there are there are two important things that the court does need to decide here, uh, at least two. I mean, one is just on the merits. Uh, did the president violate this clause? That's a factual question. Uh, and I think the plaintiffs in these cases, they believe they're right. Uh, but the courts need to adjudicate that if this is, in fact, a just justiciable issue. Uh, the other question that I think is pressing in the private plaintiff's case, uh, and maybe also in the state case, is whether these are the right plaintiffs. This is the classic standing question. Were these plaintiffs hurt in a way that counts, such that you can get into federal court? Uh, that is a perfectly reasonable question. I think the parties on both sides are going to make arguments about that. Uh, but the thing that I would encourage uh, the judges in these cases, or justices perhaps, potentially, uh, when they hear these arguments from the United States government, uh, is to press the government on this point we've been discussing. Uh, is their argument just that the particular hotel operator at issue here was not injured in a way that counts for standing purposes? Or is the government trying to argue that nobody can challenge uh, this type of conduct? Uh, and to the extent there's oral argument or other uh, interaction between the bench and the attorneys, uh, I think it would be uh, a technique that would be available to the judges to press the government on that point, to ask the government, what is the hypothetical plaintiff who, if the allegations and the complaint were true, uh, would have the ability to challenge them? Sure. Uh, again, I think it's important both for how the court conceptualizes these cases. Are we talking about specific questions of standing or broader questions of justiciability? Uh, but I think it's also important for the public as they observe this litigation. Uh, is the government taking the position that no one can challenge the president's potential business dealings with foreign governments? Or are they taking the position that we just haven't found the right person yet? Those feel to me like very different arguments. Uh, and I'd like to know uh, which position the Justice Department is taking. Just to put a finer point on that, are those really kind of the two alternatives? So if the, the government would yield that this is a justiciable question, does that mean there must be somewhere out there someone who could sue on it? Uh, are there cases, is it possible that you have a justiciable question, but really no possible plaintiffs? That, that seems like there would be kind of a gap there. Well, if certainly if no one is harmed, uh, current doctrine seems to suggest that perhaps no one could have standing. Although if we're talking about a situation where no one is harmed, uh, perhaps my heart is bleeding less uh, than it is in a situation where we do have people harmed by certain conduct. Uh, there's kind of a parallel debate here that's not at issue in these cases about whether the kind of injury that could provide standing could be created, for example, by the legislature. Uh, and there's conflicting positions on that, at least in cases like key TAM cases where parties are suing on behalf of the government but entitled to some portion of the recovery. Uh, the Supreme Court has made clear that in those situations, even lacking personal harm, uh, an individual could have standing. There are other cases to suggest that there's some limit on the ability of the legislature to create an injury where none existed before. Uh, but again, I think that the question to press the Justice Department uh, on in this case is, uh, if these allegations are taken as true, if people are harmed, what kind of harm would meet uh, the requirement of standing in these cases? And again, the, the answer uh, might be none, and that's interesting, or the answer might be we would need a harm X, Y, and Z, in which case if I were plaintiff's attorney, I'd be looking for plaintiff X, Y, and Z. Yeah, just just one last one. You mentioned that some of those other very obscure clauses like tonnage and import-export clauses have been decided by courts. There's been a case law around them 
Is it true that this this question has not really been in the courts in the history of our, our country? Have there not been successful emolument suits, or has the Supreme Court not uh, grappled with, with the question at, at all? There have been no, uh, no foreign emolument clause suits that I'm aware of. Uh, now, that doesn't mean this hasn't been an issue. Uh, primarily, it's been dealt with internally within the executive branch. There's a series of memos, uh, most recently by the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, but earlier uh, memos as well, where presidents or other officers of the United States have essentially asked the Justice Department to internally adjudicate is receiving X benefit or Y benefit uh, a violation of the foreign or domestic emoluments clause. So there's a long history of lawyers and indeed government lawyers thinking about these questions. Uh, but we haven't seen in-court litigation like we are in this case. Maybe that's a reflection of the extent to which the current president has uh, much wider and active and ongoing business dealings than his predecessors. Uh, it may be just uh, coincidence. I'm, I think I'm more in the former camp, uh, but for whatever reason, there have not been private or public suits about this issue. Though again, there has been a lot of thinking about it, both by the framers and then by uh, the Justice Department over the last couple hundred years. Okay, well, it sounds like a long last we might get uh, the court weighing in um, for, for its part, um, but for now, uh, Professor Zachary Clapton, uh, Assistant Professor at, of Law at uh, Cornell Law School. Thanks so much for being on the podcast to, to unpack this all for us. I uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Much ado has been made around the newly formed Commission on Election Integrity, formed by President Trump, purportedly to secure elections and prevent any voter fraud. Some argue that this is a, a worthwhile, legitimate, and perhaps overdue aim, as state voter rolls might well include folks that have left the state or deceased. Others contend the group's underlying aim is a bit more insidious, and that the facially proper purpose masks the group's actual purpose of erecting as many barriers between legitimate American voters and the ballot box. Our next guests, Sophia Lakin and Teresa Lee, are part of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project and have brought suit against the Commission claiming violations of a 1970s federal statute, the Federal Advisory Committee Act. Sophia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. And also Teresa Lee, a staff attorney at the same office. Teresa, welcome into the show. Thanks so much for having us, Brian. Okay. Uh, so, Sophia, I wanted to start out before we get into your your suit filed July 10th against the uh, the commission um, into some previous suits that you worked on for the ACLU in the state of Kansas, where, of course, the head of the commission, Chris Kobach, is the Secretary of State. I know one of them reached the the, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and dealt with a lot of these same issues, depending on what frame you sort of look at the, the question, issues of election integrity or voter suppression, um, but just procedures around the, the voting process. So could you tell me a, a bit about those cases and how courts have kind of grappled with those, um, which might give us a, a bit of insight as to how courts might in the future grapple with a case like the one you brought in, uh, in federal court here? Sure. So as you mentioned, um, we have a number of cases in, in the state of Kansas um, against the Secretary of State there, Chris Kobach, who is also the vice chair of the Election Integrity Commission. And he, as in, in, the, in our words, has been called the king of voter suppression. Um, he has championed very restrictive registration requirements, um, as well as a voter ID, a strict voter ID requirement in his home state of Kansas. Um, and we have uh, brought a lawsuit challenging the documentary proof of citizenship requirement to register to vote in Kansas. Um, back in February of 2016. Um, and in that, that requirement is quite difficult for people to meet. A lot of individuals do not have their um, birth certificate or passport or other documents along uh, with them when they're going to a registration fair or um, just in general to register. Some of these, some folks don't have these documents at all. Um, and we found that at, at least 18,000 individuals uh, who registered to vote at DMV, at the, D the Department of Motor Vehicles in Kansas, uh, were disenfranchised by this uh, this requirement to register to vote. And uh, we brought suit, and uh, the Tenth Circuit went all the way up to the Tenth Circuit on a, a, a preliminary injunction. And the Tenth Circuit agreed that um, this requirement, this documentary proof of citizenship requirement, 
disenfranchised um, 18,000 motor voter applicants in Kansas, and that this was a mass denial of a fundamental constitutional right that um, Chris Kobach was responsible for. And we have a number of other lawsuits that are, are of, involve a variety of restrictive measures that the Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, has, has put in place in Kansas. And, and as of now, um, the courts have agreed with us that these are restrictive measures denying people their right to vote and um, uh, need to be stopped. Just to, to parse that slightly, the, the suit that you're referencing, uh, Fish versus Kobach, that went to the Tenth Circuit, the level of registration that was required um, by the, the state law was uh, over and, and beyond just presenting a like a, a state-issued ID, like a, a driver's license. There was a citizenship requirement as well? So this was... Um this was for registration. So when voters actually went to the to register to vote in the first instance, um, the vast majority of states, um, almost all states in 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 this country, um, require you only to swear to attest under penalty of perjury that you're a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Kansas is taking that a vast step farther by requiring individuals to have documents and evidence of of their U.S. citizenship before they can be registered to vote. So that's a citizenship document like a passport or a birth certificate or a naturalization document. Um, if you don't provide that document, you won't be able to uh, be on the rolls and and cast a ballot. On top of this, the Secretary of State also has a voter ID requirement, so that's strict voter ID requirement at the polls in which you'd have to show a photo ID of a certain type in order to cast a regular ballot. Uh, then sort of fast forward to the suit that you brought against the commission. Now, you filed this case a couple of weeks ago around the time that uh, the commission got a, a bit more public attention when it began to solicit information from secretaries of state around uh, the country for various pieces of, of voter information. Those states held um, some public, some private. But did your lawsuit, um, Teresa, did it, your, your plans to sue, did it predate that action by the commission at all? Had you had the suit in mind? Um, obviously, the, the commission is sort of getting up and running now, but it's been sort of a preliminary, preliminary setup has been going on since the, the inauguration. Um, how long have you been sort of planning this suit? So the lawsuit that we filed uh, on uh, July 10th is under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, which requires certain public accountability measures from all advisory committees. Um, And so it only became clear that the commission was not going to be complying with that law when it started its actual operations. The, The sort of election integrity commission itself was certainly uh, on the president's mind to, to really sell his lie that he won the popular vote and to then further justify the voter suppression tactics that uh, uh, Vice Chair Kobach has championed in Kansas and, and many other members of the commission have sort of championed more broadly. But as to the, the specific um, the specific lawsuit, it was really brought about by the facts of the way the commission was beginning to operate as soon as that became clear. Sure. Okay. You mentioned that the Federal Advisory Committee actually is kind of the lever uh, upon which you, you base your, your suit here. It's the first time that I've heard of that the federal statute. Can you tell me a, a bit, bit more about it, when and why it was sure. enacted and how, who does it cover and sort of how, how did you ended up kind of picking that as your, your point of attack here? Yes, absolutely. So it's actually sort of quite a longstanding um, enactment. Uh, it was uh passed into law in the early 1970s, um, and it's a federal law basically designed to ensure that both the public and Congress has oversight of advisory committees that are advising the federal government, whether they're presidential committees like this one or um, ones put together by an agency head. Um, sort of different federal agencies could also sort of put together similar commissions that would also be uh, required to follow the same the same rules. And the act requires that um, in order to ensure that commissions are actually sort of doing expert work um, and doing the doing really the public's work as opposed to sort of advancing any sort of special interest agenda, they require that the membership be fairly balanced, that the the creation of the commission um, include provisions that uh, that prevent the members from being unduly influenced by either the appointing authority, meaning the person who put them on on the commission, in this case that would be President Trump, um, or by other sort of outside special interests. Um, And then also that um, all of the transparency and accountability provisions 
um, are followed, which include um, open meetings, that all meetings are noticed beforehand, um, and that um, all records of the commission, even ones unrelated to meetings, but that are related to sort of uh, all of the meeting documents, but also other deliberative documents, other things that the commission's considering, basically any document that's made available to or um, provided for or by the commission all need to be accessible to the public. Um, it's, and it was enacted sort of similarly around the same time, uh, a little bit after, but around the same time as FOIA, and it's really at a time in the country when reali just realizing the importance of, of public accountability, that, that the public's work can't be done in secret. And then, and for us here, um, it, the interests are even heightened um, with the fact that such an important fundamental constitutional right is at issue, is being debated here. So in addition to just sort of a, a regular standard public interest in, you know, transparency and good governance, the the fact of the of the constitutional rights that's at issue just uh, sort of heightens the importance, we think. Digging into the complaint just a little bit, Teresa, could you tell me sure. a few of the ways you say that uh, now that the uh, commission is up and running, you became aware that, in your opinion, it would violate this act? What uh, In what specific kind of ways is doing it, say, in the complaint, some relate to the transparency and public access um, element of, of the statute, and other ways deal with uh, the composition of the, the commission? Tell, tell me a bit more about the specific uh, claims that you bring. Sure. Um, so initially, one thing to say is as, as soon as we filed um, our lawsuit or a, a couple of days thereafter, uh, the, the commission sort of hastily attempted to, to moot out some of our claims by, by slapping up their, their website on the White House blog, which, le which included links to some of, definitely not all of, but to some of the required documents. Um, and so... Uh, just by the fact of filing the lawsuit as an initial matter has has led to a push for at least some of the documents, certainly not all of them. Um, and so an, an initial uh, issue is the, the reports that came out following uh, the June 28th uh, meeting of the commission, which they have tried to pitch as purely organizational, but the reports that have come out in the media, the fact of that, that hugely broad request to all of the states suggest to us, um, and we think uh, the evidence will bear this out, that there really was substantive work done at that meeting. It was not merely preparatory or organizational, and so that should have been noticed to the public uh, beforehand. It's supposed to be noticed 15 days beforehand, um, and that also should have been accessible to the public. Um, uh, similarly, any documents uh, uh, provided to or uh, by the commission members for that meeting, for the July 19th meeting, and in general um, need to be accessible to the public. The, the majority of the documents that they have put up on, the, on their blog website um, have been the public comments and not sort of documents created by the commission itself. So we believe there's a substantial number of documents that still have not been made accessible to the public. Um, for all meetings, even ones that would be preparatory, the minutes still need to be kept. Minutes are required by the statute for all meetings, um, and so those minutes need to be kept and made accessible to the public, as do transcripts of any meeting. Um, and those need to be made accessible, though they can be made at the cost of duplication, which, which, which that particular provision perhaps shows us it's from the early 70s because the cost of electronic duplication would be nothing. Um, and so you still have all of those um, uh, open meeting and open document um, issues. Uh, at the same time, under Section 5 of the Federal Advisory Committee Act is the provisions that require um, a balanced uh, committee uh, and um, provisions to prevent uh, special interests or, or the appointing authority um, to, uh, to influence the committee. Um, it's clear from the executive order um, there was uh, no thought given to that. It doesn't include any provisions um, providing for either balance or to, to prevent um, undue influence. And more than just the, the executive order that created the commission in the first instance, 
I, I think we would uh, definitely say, and the facts bear out, that the people who have been appointed uh, certainly belie uh, any idea of, of fair balance. And, and quite frankly, the, the continued insistence up to uh, uh, Secretary Kobach's appearance on MSNBC last night that um, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, did not win or, or the popular vote and that Donald Trump would have won the popular vote absent um, illegal votes uh, sh- clearly uh, demonstrates that there is um, uh, ties to uh, giving into the the position of the appointing authority. Um, if you look back at sort of any of the the recent election in uh, election focused presidential commissions, there was one after the 2012 election about sort of um, more administrative concerns about the long lines. I think in the 2012 election is really what precipitated that one. You need to look. You need look no further than than the co-chairs of this commission, the vice president, someone who would be directly uh, impacted by uh, the popular vote totals, um, and then, uh, as Sophia uh, so aptly put it, the king of voter suppression. Um, chairing this commission, it, uh, based on, on the meeting yesterday and on the representations made to the court, it appears that Vice President Pence will be doing little and Chris Kobach will be driving driving the bus. Every other commission had bipartisan co-chairs. The 2012 commission had uh, Bob Bauer, who is um, a counsel to President Obama's campaign, and Ben Ginsburg, who is counsel to, to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in that same year, were the co-chairs. That, that's sort of a, a, a perfect illustration of the type of balance that these commissions are supposed to have. Because the commission itself uh, and it's routinely touted as bipartisan is clearly going to try and be used to, to give support um, and make things politically saleable um, regarding restrictions around the right to vote. Um, and so that's why it's so important that it actually complies um, with the balance and also the, the transparency provisions of the law. Sophia, I, I wanted to touch on some of those broader uh, policy concerns that are circling around these more straightforward or more technical statutory um, compliance questions. Obviously, the, the right to vote is a, a fundamental one. So when folks um, would claim that the commission would really have a kind of underlying motivating purpose of uh, potentially restricting it, that's, that's certainly a, a strong claim. Um, on the other side, one could say it's a, a good thing to secure elections and to make sure that uh, folks are not uh, voting that that should not be. Um, why, I suppose, what is the mechanism by which you say that forming this commission to purportedly um, uphold electoral integrity um, would perhaps uh, suppress votes? Well, I think that you're exactly right that um, everyone agrees, and we certainly are part of that. We agree that elections should be secure, they should be fair, they should be transparent. We have um, no quarrel with that. I think what's concerning here is, is you know, what, what Teresa has pointed out in terms of um, the composition of the individuals who are, who are leading this charge and their history of voter suppression and making wild claims about election irregularities with no evidence, as well as just the genesis of this, the, of this uh, commission and um, the backstory as to why it exists in the first place for months leading up to this commission, and even, you know, as Teresa pointed out with Chris Kobach's uh, interview last night, as well as, the, the, as President Trump's own remarks during the commission meeting yesterday, um, this has all been brought about to sell the lie that um, President Trump would have won the popular vote if you discount all the supposedly illegal votes, um, millions of illegal votes that were cast out there. Um, in light of that statement and the creation of the commission in that shadow and literally no attempt to give any sort of um, true credibility to this organization by appointing um, individuals who um, are not, who do not carry um, a long history of baggage with respect to uh, suppressing the right to vote, who have been, who have, who have been found by courts to have denied um, in a mass way, people's fundamental right to vote, who have um, been sanctioned 
by a court um, in a case involving voter registration and and voter suppression um, who have who made patently misleading representations, um, as well as other individuals who have had similar histories in terms of making statements of of about um, voter fraud and uh, without any sort of evidence who have clearly had an agenda in terms of making voting more difficult, putting up barriers to vote, um, to uh, really, really make the franchise difficult to access for those individuals who have always historically had a difficult time accessing the franchise. We're talking about Hans von Spakovsky, um, Jay Christian Adams, Ken Blackwell. These individuals all have a very long history of... of um, thinking about voter fraud and speaking about voter fraud um, in this very uh, irresponsible manner, I would say. And um, it's very hard to take what the, the work of what this organization is doing um, in any other fashion other than it as a cover to, to basically take the experiment that has been done in Kansas uh, in terms of suppressing the right to vote and bringing that to the nation as a whole. And I would I would also just add the the commission almost all the commissioners seem to want to start their their uh, statements that they were doing their work with no no preconceived notions uh, but quite frankly the rest of their comments uh, sort of underscore that I think the commissioners doth protest too much um, they then proceeded to make conclusions about voter fraud about supposed um, non-citizen voting which the facts just do not bear out they they asserted that there were millions of, of double registrants determined by cross-check when independent studies of that data shows that actually it's 200 to 1 in terms of false positives. Um, and so even just their their statements yesterday sort of belie um, that this is going to be actually um, fair work actually aimed at in- election integrity. Teresa, what how what exactly do you need to show in this suit to sort of prevail on that point about uh, having the the commission having perhaps an improper composition or some undue influence or perhaps a improper motivation? I mean, those do sort of seem like difficult things to to prove in court. What someone's underlying motivations are, if at least facially, um, the commission has a, a purportedly noble goal. Um, how exactly and how? Much of a showing do you have to kind of make to to get your point across the goal line here with um, we're talking about folks' motivations? Sure. Um, well, in terms of the balance, I think by sh- by demonstrating to the court uh, past statements, past writings, um, and just the the composition of the commission itself purporting to balance um, sort of uh, substantial Republican office holders with um, Sort of, with the exception of of the Secretary of State of Maine, um, with Democrats who um, are county clerks in Republican states um, who were recommended by their Republican Secretaries of State, um, and several of them, um, David Dunn, who's not who's a consultant, a lobbyist, basically, um, and Mark Rhodes, who is a, a county clerk who does run elections in West Virginia, both have said they do not know why they were appointed to the commission. They were surprised by it. Um, and I, so I just think the facts of it really speak to, to the balance point, and we would be presenting that all to the court. Um, and obviously, when it comes to the, to the merit stage, we should uh, have, have further uh, discovery as opposed to just public statements um, to support that as well. In terms of the... Um, requirement that there's provisions to prevent undue influence. I think that's sort of much more clear just straight on the face of the, um, both on the face of the executive order creating the commission, there was absolutely no provision made. Um, and then by pointing to Republican co-chairs in practice, I think it's then clear that there was no provision made um, to, to ensure that they were not unduly influenced by, by the appointing authority by President Trump in this case. Sophia, I know also there are some concerns that in addition to obstacles sort of being set up um, between voters and the ballot box, um, that another potential voter suppression mechanism could be, and you identify this in the complaint, some false positives that are um, identified 
when information comes in from the states to the commission. What uh, what exactly are you you talking about uh, there? Sure, and I think um, that's a great question, and it goes a little also to the um, the concern that we have that we um, the public has not been provided all the documents um, and all the information that the commission has reviewed or considered, or if they have indeed provided us all the documents that they have uh, reviewed and considered as a commission, that they are um, pretty much taking the word of uh, Secretary Kobach over any sort of informed um, decision-making. And I say that because uh, essentially what we're what we're referring to when we talk a little bit about the matching process done with the voter data, the personal voter data requests that the Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, sent out to the, to the various states um, that have caused such a controversy for him. Um, that matching that, that he has described and that he has used both yesterday during the commission meeting as well as um, in other iterations of his life um, to say that there are, there are many, many, many thousands of individuals who are improperly registered in, in double states and in multiple states and casting um, ballots in those states. He's referring to what a methodology that he has used and that is called his, through his interstate cross-check program. And there, there was a, certainly at least one study um, done by researchers at Stanford University where they have found that the methodology used there, so um, it's uh, matching on the basis of first name, last name, and date of birth, results in um, a very, very high rate of, of false positives. So well, there are a number of people who um, actually have the same first name, last name, and date of birth um, in this country. And um, using that information to make claims about the number of individuals who may be registered to vote in more than one state is as with many of the wild claims out there, extremely irresponsible um, and meant to ginny up a false sense of a problem where there isn't one. And uh, the concern um, that we see with this information is that voter roll data um, uh, is sometimes not consistent across states. Uh, not all states collect the same information. Uh, sometimes there are minor inaccuracies in, in the data collected, um, and there's a problem with using a um, criteria that is not going to give you a unique identification. So if you use that information to try to identify double, uh, to, to identify matches, you're going to uh, end up with individuals who really aren't matches. And if you decide that those individuals are ineligible to vote and you therefore remove them from the rolls, you are going to end up with many, many individuals in this country who are purged from the roles, who shouldn't be purged, and who therefore will be disenfranchised come come um, election time. Teresa, I, I know some arguments have been made that you know, though you might have some false positives, there it's it's probably the case that folks will move from one state to the other, or folks in the state will have passed on, and the voter rolls probably do include folks uh, who in that state no longer have the right to vote there or have. The right to vote in, in a second state. Um, have there been attempts in in the past to try and look at the rules and clean them up? Um, is it the, the sort of thing that that is a, a worthwhile or legitimate aim? Um, and sort of how what would be the the better way to do it in your view? Yes, it's definitely a worthwhile aim, and it's one that's uh, provided for by the National Voter Registration Act. Um, and what the National Voter Registration Act is concerned with is keeping eligible voters on the rolls while at the same time making an effort to remove all of the ineligible voters from the rolls. And so that act um, requires and allows for the removal of any voters who um, have been, uh, depending on the particular state at issue, judgmentally incompetent, have a felony conviction, have requested that their voter registration be canceled, uh, be identified through death records and who have changed their residence. And for folks who have changed their residence, uh, because they're sort of uh, not just, uh, obviously, if, if you have a, a death record from the state, that's obviously very um, explicitly demonstrates that uh, you're no longer eligible to vote. But for, for change of residence, the NVRA provides for a provision so people aren't inappropriately kicked off from the rolls. Uh, so an individual, when they fill out 
for example, the USPS, like national, national change of address, um, there is then a provision where they are then sent a mailing under the NVRA. And, and this is all done at the state level. The, uh, the states and the, excuse me, at the, at the county, the jurisdictional level, the people who actually run elections, the people who actually, r- like, manage the electoral rolls. Um, and they are, are sent a mailer, um, and they either can send it back and say, yes, I've changed my address, you can remove me from the rolls, or if they don't send it back, um, th- then once two election cycles pass, they're then removed, from, they're, they're marked inactive when it's not received back, and then after two election cycles, they're removed. So the NVRA already provides for list maintenance. And so really what's at issue here is not list maintenance. They, they point to, to sort of, uh, uh, the issues of, of deceased voters and voters who have moved and things like that in order to advocate sort of a broader tightening of the rules. If those, if their concerns were actually, uh, just the removal of ineligible voters, they would be, they would be interested in continuing to fund the EAC, which supports, um, states through the NVRA. Um, and recognize that the provisions of that act are already directed at just that issue. The real concern here is doing things that sweep far too broadly um, and remove people who shouldn't be removed. And and uh, I would say notably um, the fact that um, in response to sort of this the outcry of the states um, to Secretary Kobach's uh, request for sort of huge amounts of data, the fact that he then uh, sort of tried to stress that they weren't asking for sort of all of the identifying data, but only what's already a public record, sort of underscores that he necessarily knows he won't have uh, good enough data to actually even do legitimate matching. You're sort of guaranteeing sort of even more false positives by um, having it just limited to the publicly available data, which in some states doesn't even include birth date, only includes birth year. So will lead you to have even sort of more uh, false positives. And that sort of speaks to what Sophia was saying about the, the various sort of different levels of data collection and, and data release that the different states. Um, have s- sort of struck uh, a balance within their their own jurisdiction. Okay, um, maybe just one last one, Trevor. Sophia, I know your organization, the ACLU, has kind of mustered a multi-prong attack here on the commission. I understand the the Florida branch of the ACLU has also filed a, a suit in the district court um, of Southern Florida, I think, relating to the commission's um, information request. Could you tell me a bit about that case, how it might differ uh, from your own? So they, there are a number of differences there. I mean, they, the, it's a, as you say, a multi-pronged attack, um, um, and it's one of, I believe the number might be up to seven or eight lawsuits that have been um, filed in uh, against the commission in some variety of forms. The Florida case brings in, sweeps in um, a little bit broader claims dealing with. Um, for instance, a, a state privacy-related issue, um, and they actually received a, a temporary restraining order um, related to that issue um, and the data, per, the data to be provided just recently. Um, so, it, it's just, I would say trying to reach a very similar questions here: um, accountability, transparency, security of the data. Um, and um, generally questioning um, what the commission is trying to do here and their methodology for trying to accomplish that. Okay. Uh, well, then I'll let you guys get back to work. It sounds like the ACLU is a, a busy place um, these days. Uh, Sophia Lakin, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. And uh, Teresa Lee, th- thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rue. We are happy to join join you and your audience. And with that, our show for July 21st, 2017 is complete. Thanks very much to all of my guests, Zachary Clopton, Sophia Lakin, and Teresa Lee. And thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, CLE credit is available to listeners. Just find the link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. It's again, I'm Brian Cardo. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.